moment, the curtain will go up on the... Welcome once more to the supper. All right, physicians. In radio drama, there's... That's right. Now listen to me. We hope you'll listen each week to our new series, Attraction One. Hello and welcome to On the Earwaves, a new podcast about the things we hear. My name is Lisa Martine Jenkins. And I'm Emmy Bell. Our guest this week is Alice Nichols, friend, linguist, and future speech therapist. Hi, I'm Alice Nichols. I'm a speech language pathologist in training at CSU East Bay. Um, I got my undergrad degree in linguistics at UC Santa Cruz. This week, as you may have guessed from Alice's presence, we're going to be discussing the radio voice. What is it? How has it evolved? And specifically, how young women like us fit into the whole discussion. Since this might be a topic that listeners aren't as familiar with, we'll make sure to mention several resources for acquainting yourself with the subject. But first, we will give a little overview of some of the topics we'll be covering. First up, vocal fry. If you ever watched anything that... Um, I've seen some videos that are like, have you seen this new trend of vocal fry? It is just so silly. And <laughs> it's very it's very dismissive and... Um, it's talked about like it's a trend or a style as if it's something that people wear and very intentionally, but it's very much in like so many other vocal mannerisms. It's very subconscious and has a lot to do with the people, people that you're around. Um, but essentially what it is is that the vocal, vocal folds, um, normally when you're producing sounds, the vocal folds are vibrating super, super fast because they're really, really um, very tense and there's air flowing through them. So you kind of think of it like a very um, tightly wound guitar string. Um, and with vocal fry, they're a lot looser. And so they're a little, <laughs> a little floppier. And so it kind of gives you that creaky... Um, not as smooth, resonant sound. It kind of has that, uh, so it's sometimes called creaky voice for that reason. What I think is really interesting is that in my understanding, vocal fry is a relatively recent phenomenon, but in a little bit of the research that I've done, it actually seems like it has existed in one form or another for a lot longer than the media would have you believe. Um, and I think it's just... A matter of people beginning to recognize it and that's why we feel like it is more prominent now because I I had no idea what it was until I listened to a This American Life episode which I'll speak a little bit more about later and I had never heard of it had never noticed it on anyone and after listening to the episode still didn't even really feel like I I had any idea what it was um, until speaking with Alice actually and I have realized that I do it all the time and it's just like the way I talk and it's the way that pretty much all of my peers talk and so it's kind of odd to think of it as a trend in the way that like I don't know a, a specific word or something might be a trend because it seems a lot more subconscious than that. Well one of the things that's happening is that it tends to happen primarily at the end of a sentence or a phrase. So we'll get into this in a minute. In the up-talk, this is the opposite, where up-talk, you have sort of rising pitch pattern at the end of a sentence. You know, the valley girls speak. Um, but vocal fry, it's the very opposite, where your voice is kind of trailing off. <laughs> and so it's, in a lot of ways, kind of a natural way to stop talking it's funny that they're that they're kind of opposites because i feel like in culture both are associated with the teenage girl like up talk strange we, <laughs> up talk we think about you know the classic valley girl dating back to the 80s or whenever that became popularized um in media and then vocal fry i kind of I don't know, I feel like is associated with the modern teenager and like the modern teenage girl. As we're talking about this, I'm noticing 
specifically myself definitely oh I was just like totally trying (laughs) I was just trying to do vocal fry because I don't I just I don't I never recognize it in myself so I was just trying to do it there you just did it and I did it yeah I know you did I felt very accomplished (laughs) it was successful (laughs) anyway I mean this is also something that I kind of want to talk about a little bit later once we've moved past these definitions but at least in my experience my very brief experience with kind of research on vocals. I think pretty much all vocal trends tend to be attributed to teenage girls, despite the fact that a lot of people seem to be using vocal fry as well. So I don't know. That's something we can jump into a little bit later. Um, Alice, do you want to give us a little rundown on uptalk? Sure. I mean, I think what you were just saying was definitely a perfect segue because uptalk has been attributed to a very specific um, region and culture of young women in Southern California, sort of Valley Girl speak. Um, But it's definitely become a very big part of how many people speak and it's become pretty normalized. And a lot of times we don't notice it as much until we start talking about, you know, the women in the workplace and the sort of how they need to alter their voices to sort of assimilate to the predominant male culture of the workplace. And what about like? Do we want to bring like into the conversation? Oh, like, I mean, yeah. I remember being in high school and being chastised by my grandparents for saying like. And then I have this moment of glory a few years ago where I heard my grandpa say (laughs) something. He used like to quote someone to sort of say, oh, and they, they were like, blah, blah, blah. And, but it, it was so, so gratifying because so much of what linguists have talked about is how like is used in so many different functions. It's not just, um, a lot of times it's used as a pause. It's used to quote speech in a very um, nonspecific way, um, a very um, gestalt way of um, quoting someone, which I think is really cool. And yeah, it has very different functions. And it's really cool because one of the cool things that linguists do is describe patterns of words in these very rule-regulated ways. So we can look at it with how it, where it occurs in a sentence, um, which is fascinating. And it's semantic uses, so it's not random. Really interesting. I, I feel like, like, <laughs> the word like bothers me. I don't know if this is generational, but I feel like I notice like less than um. I don't, but that could be just too because now we're doing this podcast and I feel like I say um a lot and I, I'm starting to notice um in other podcasters. So maybe I'm just thinking about um. But maybe it's because like is used as an actual word versus um, which is just a space filler. But I feel that culturally like is considered worse than um, at least by older generations. Mm -hmm. Definitely agree. And it's it's interesting because if you because I've talked to people about this and I mean, I've actually researched about this that, you know, academics, when they're doing a presentation, they won't use like or they won't use ya, um, but they will use other space fillers that aren't noticeable and we're not looking for them in academic spheres because we respect them already. Yeah, I mean, I think that's really an interesting thing specifically because we need space fillers just for conversation. It's almost impossible to have a conversation without having pauses for thought and the fact that we have kind of attributed um, <laughs> the fact that we've contributed or the fact that we have attributed this kind of lack of intelligence to certain space fillers and maybe not to others is really kind of bizarre. I took a lot of language classes in high school. I really love languages and love learning them. And I remember specifically for the AP French oral exam, my teacher was prepping us for it and telling us, here are the things you should say, here are the things that might come up. And she said that one thing that drops your score a lot is saying um or like in between sentences because you're speaking in French. 
And so it is really jarring for the person that's who the, for the person who's greeting you. And but she did say, she said basically just say um, but with a thick French accent. So during the <laughs> oral exam, we're all sitting in in the exam room talking into our headphones, going eh, maybe. <laughs> like with this hilarious low French accent. That's so funny because I actually distinctly recall having this realization as a teenager that I say the Swedish version of like when I speak Swedish, which is, yeah, I say liksom, like to fill in. I noticed myself saying it and I was like, oh my God, this is terrible. But then I realized that my my peers that are from Sweden, but like the same age as me, do the same thing. So I probably picked it up from them rather than bringing it in from the English. But it was this crazy realization like, I can't escape this terrible habit no matter what language I'm speaking. Well, I mean, it should give you solace that no matter what language you're speaking, no matter who you're speaking to, no matter if it's a you know public, no matter if it's a podcast or a film presentation or you went on to you know, some PhD program and had to give a poster presentation, you would have to be conscientious of what fillers you were using. <laughs> So if that either makes you sad or reassured. Reassured, definitely for me. I would say reassured, but also I feel like it would be a better use of our time to be concerned about something else. Like it just seems that it's something that everybody does. And I guess this is actually a relatively good transition into our Mm -hmm. our media segment. That's Um, a great transition. Thanks. Um, <laughs> so there's this. Mis- there was okay. So there was this this American Life episode in I think it was early early 2015 called "If you don't have anything nice to say, say it in all caps." And there are a bunch of acts, and they're kind of about people writing in and people being upset, specifically on the internet. And the second act is about letters that listeners have written in to This American Life and about the enormous quantity of letters that they get specifically about vocal fry. So they used to have a lot of letters about up talk and about the word like by the radio hosts, but those have kind of faded away as there has been more popular awareness of vocal fry instead. And this is one of my favorite episodes or my favorite segments of an episode of This American Life ever because it really shows how much reporters and just kind of any any media figure deals with their 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 public persona and how these people who I think are incredibly intelligent and who I think I really regard as figures of authority and as role models even how they have so many people writing into them every week saying I can't believe you had Hannah Joffrey Walt talk about, I'm just making this up, talking about the conflict in Syria because her vocal fry was just so distracting. How could you possibly have that figure of authority talking in such a childish, casual way? Um, And as a listener, I have never noticed any of that. But I also think that's because specifically the women who speak on This American Life talk the way that I do or the way that I wish I did if I were a famous radio reporter. (laughs) So one point that I found really fascinating and have thought a lot about is the fact that Ira Glass apparently also does vocal fry. Um, And he at one point turns to Hannah Joffrey-Walt and says, have you noticed me doing vocal fry? And she goes, no, not until you just mentioned it. And he goes, yeah, I do it all the time. Somebody pointed it out to me and I, I constantly use vocal fry and I've never received one letter about it. Ugh. Which just really speaks to how gendered this issue is. Yeah, so gendered. Because young men and young women and just men and women in general speak in much the same way. Um, but it's it's young women who get called out for saying like and called out for using vocal fry and called out for using up talk, despite the fact that it's just something that young people in general seem to do and people in general, including Ira Glass at this point. 
So Alice, is this something that you have noticed in your research and in your schooling that this these topics are generally attributed to women rather than men? Definitely. I mean, even when I first, I just had a voice therapy class this quarter, actually. And, you know, we talked about vocal fry and um, my professor, even even she, who is a you know, she is a speech therapist, so I guess I should probably give her some credibility. But you know, but yeah, I mean, she said that it's something that predominantly young women do, um, which, yeah, I mean, it's very stereotyped as something that young women do. And again, I, I don't know if the research actually is borne out that it's, you know, 75 to 90 percent young women who do it, but... I think we're so focused on the fact that young women do it that they're it doesn't really matter if young men are doing it. We just listen to it when we young women do it. Although I think at by the same token there I think there's probably something going on with pitch that with vocal fry comes a lower pitch lower pitched voice. So for possibly for men, it may not be as noticeable because their pitch is already lower than women's. So that's one explanation for why perhaps it's not as noticeable because it's just a, a quality change that happens for men. You know, they have a low pitch and then it just gets kind of crackly. But for women, it gets lower and it gets more crackly. So that is one explanation. But I think really... The crux of it is that it has so much to do with the way that we get so flustered over women in power and women who have media control and um, a lot of the there's definitely been many articles written um, both in sort of you know popular news magazines about the way that women talk and it's a very divisive issue between between women and amongst women um, many think that just it's kind of disempowering women to speak that way and then there's another side that's saying this criticism of women is actually totally problematic in, of, in and of itself this is actually a great segue into the piece of media that I was going to mention, which is an episode of Stuff You Should Know called Vocal Fry and Other Speech Trends. Stuff You Should Know is a podcast um, put out by How Stuff Works. And um, yeah, I mean, basically the, the main subject of the episode is vocal fry, but they, they also delve into a couple other things and accents and whatnot. But one thing that they mentioned that I thought was amazing, such an interesting piece of information and research, oh, is that most of the people that are having these issues with women speaking this way or pointing it out or drawing attention to it tend to be older white men who, as the hosts suggest, maybe their issue with the maybe their issue with these speech trends is that quote they are identifying girls as significant agents of change and that's threatening to them so then they um, mention an actual study uh, that points to women over the course of history frequently being the people that adopt new speech patterns grammar and vocabulary first that then later becomes like a trend amongst all humans everywhere. So maybe it's not that we, maybe it's, we shouldn't be looking at it as a bad thing, but more like women are sort of creating the next trend that everyone will subscribe to eventually. But anyway, I won't steal all of their research. You should just listen to the episode and they go into way more detail about it. And it's really great. Um, but one really great thing that Chuck Bryant, who's one of the hosts mentions is that during the recording of this episode, he's like really specifically listening to his own voice and it's really stressful. And he says like he can't imagine what it's like to constantly be worrying about that. 
and how he just feels so badly for all other women in media, especially in radio, where your voice is pretty much the only part of you that your audience experiences, like how stressful it must be to constantly be thinking about that when people are always writing into you and telling you basically you sound like an idiot in comparison to your male counterparts because, yeah, because you have vocal fry or whatever. I think it's really interesting specifically about what you said about um, identifying girls as significant agents of change is just this idea that I think we we think of the radio voice as a older male, very white kind of, I mean, it's the voice, it's the voice that we have in our introduction, the clips that I I pulled, <laughs> that I sampled our, our introductory music. That is the radio voice, the Jack Benny voice, which yes, is a very classic, very calming, traditional sounding voice. But, and I think, but that is kind of what we consider an invisible voice because that's what you want for the radio is you want somebody who can deliver the news in a way that just makes you hear the news and doesn't make you focus on their voice and because the radio was and actually pretty much all professions were kind of <laughs> initiated by the role of the white man that is what we consider a, an invisible radio voice but I think as times change and as more women are on the radio and as people of other races are on the radio and I don't know as NPR becomes less and less whitewashed hopefully our idea of what is an authoritative voice is changing so what the stuff you should know host I think it's Josh Clark right yeah I was think one it was of them that said it what he said about identifying women as agents of change is really fascinating because Radio is one of the mediums that, as we actually mentioned in our introduction, our introductory episode, is one of the mediums that is still kind of predom predominantly white men, older white men who kind of are the hosts and are featured on the most radio programs. And so I think that is, that is a perspective that we still consider authoritative within the realm of radio and it's interesting to watch that change and to watch just enormous resistance to that change and watch all of these New York Times articles and all of these podcast episodes discussing how the vocal fry is compromising the authority of our news people and how the word like is ruining the universe. Right, how it's watering down the, you know, the quality of the news that's being delivered. Um, I think I think one thing, if I can add, is that a lot of times in in linguistics we talk about how uh, the voice is like a very easy way to judge people and pass judgment in a very veiled way and kind of get away with it because it's not as direct as talking about someone's gender or ethnicity or race. You can talk about their voice because it's something that people have a, you know, quote unquote, have a little more control over. And so if you're able to kind of talk about, oh, well, if you use this type of speaking, it makes you sound intelligent or makes you sound authoritative. When you're, what you're really talking about is their status or, um, any other quality that they may or may not have. Um, and I think, you know, what we're talking about with the radio, when we're saying that the presence of these young women, of these young women in a very old man institution, um, one of the things that I think a lot of the backlash has centered on is they're not going to be embraced just because they change their language. There, there's always going to be something that will be criticized because it's, it's not their voices that is the problem. It's the fact that they are changing the very makeup of these institutions. Yeah, not to, not to bring your family into this, but I actually think that what you mentioned about your grandfather earlier is really um, speaks to this because... It's this idea that, okay, young women or young people in general have started using like, for example. 
and everybody kind of resistance and resists it and then slowly but surely begins to kind of assimilate and it becomes just a part of the way language in the 21st century is and then your grandfather father starts saying like but that's not be that's not that doesn't mean oh we were wrong you were right we're all fine everybody talks the same then people start targeting things like uptalk people start targeting things like vocal fry there's kind of always going to be a new way of speaking that we are latching onto as incorrect or as uneducated or as not authoritative and i think that you can probably just kind of predict what the next one is going to be by just looking at what young people what i don't know 13 year olds teenagers right now are using and in about five or ten years that's going to be the newest scapegoat basically i think humans are afraid of change and humans are afraid of being replaced by their younger counterparts (laughs) and that's what it all boils down to which actually kind of reminds me of the movie that you were going to mention alice oh yeah um Lake Bell's movie, In a World, um, has a very interesting dynamic of generation and gender differences. Um, Sort of premise of the movie, which is fantastic, is a kind of competition for the the voiceovers for movie previews, which kind of what, Lisa, what you were talking about with this invisible presence, but who's also sort of setting the scene for a very exciting or heartfelt film is pretty much always a male voice. Um, And in this movie, Lake Bell is auditioning for the role and she meets a lot of resistance because she's a woman. And also because her, well, also the part of the premise too is that her father was also a voiceover um, actor. So there's like the competition there as well. And but especially just her being a woman, too, I think. Yeah, it's it was a really – I loved that movie. It was great. Thank I mean, I both watched it last night. Yeah, just watched it last night. <laughs> I'm, I'm so into it. Lake Bell, my new idol. We share the same last name. Pretty cool. You guys are probably siblings. We're probably. <laughs> I mean, it's not that common. It's really funny because um, when I first watched that movie, I think that was – over the summer or maybe a year ago. I really loved it and I loved um, her sort of assertiveness about, you know, women need to take charge and, you know, kind of step up and take control of their voice and like to be heard and to sort of, you know, fight for those jobs and to change their voice to be assertive. And then kind of as I was getting ready for this podcast, I was realizing how counter that's been to so much that I've been reading about and feeling with, with the vocal fry and how, well, wait a minute, maybe telling women to change their voices isn't the problem. It's the fact that we perceive these voices to be an indicator of weakness. I think we've, we've touched on this and we've kind of danced around a little bit, but you know, as, as I mentioned, I took a voice therapy class this quarter. And, you know, this is a funny thing, like, voice is a very, very sensitive topic. It's something that when you're doing voice therapy, you have to have a very high emotional capacity to bring people through therapy because it is, it has everything to do with how people interpret your, your message and your communication abilities. Lisa, do you want to talk a little bit about your experience uh, with your own voice? Sure. So I don't want to make this too self-centered, but Alice, what you were saying about kind of being a sensitive speech therapist is really interesting for me because I actually was in speech therapy for much of my childhood because I couldn't say my R's when I was young, which is actually kind of a whole different subject from just speech trends and the way people talk, but I I just legitimately could not form my mouth in a way that would Mm. say an R. Um, And it was, I I was quite traumatized by it As as a small child. I remember in first grade, this girl and her like 
posse would come up to me and go, Lisa, say the red rabbit runs. Oh. And I go, the wed wabbit ones. And they would like point and laugh. And it was really horrible. Oh. Anyway, <laughs> I, I went to speech therapy for like a couple of years of elementary school and would basically say sentences that had a lot of R's in them and was self-conscious about it, but also just didn't really see what the big deal was because I had only ever talked like I talked. So I didn't really see what major leap had to be made to have me talk like everybody else. And one day I just kind of figured out, oh, my tongue has to be in this position. Oh, okay. Never needed speech therapy again. Um, But I think there was something about the way that my speech therapist went about kind of training me and giving me these sentences to say that made me feel like it was, I don't know, kind of achievable and also not, and also she reinforced to me that it wasn't the biggest deal in the world, despite what these like seven-year-old mean girls were saying. And I think once I actually did achieve the R, I have not really thought that much about my voice at all. I, I do not sing. I have never really done any acting. I The only performance I've ever really done has been dance, which is very decidedly not vocal. <laughs> so I just haven't really thought about my voice. And... I hadn't thought that I wanted to do radio journalism at all. I want I have known I have wanted to be a journalist for a long time, but I always thought I wanted to pursue exclusively writing until like this year, until relatively recently, I realized, oh wow, I actually would love to be on the radio. I love listening to podcasts. I love listening to the radio pretty much whenever I can, and I think it's one of the most kind of perfect ways to receive news and to receive kind of human communication. And I would love to do that, which is long story short, how we ended up making this podcast in the first place. And all of a sudden had to be very, very conscious of the way that I talk. And there had to be very, very conscious of the fact that hundreds of people that I know and don't know are going to be listening to me and the only thing that they know about me is what I say in these like 30 to 40 minute episodes and what my voice sounds like. And that is really horrifying. Um, so horrifying that I, when I am editing the podcast, I like speed through my sections and barely look at them, (laughs) um, and focus much more on editing everybody else. And, it's not that I dislike my voice, it's just thinking too much about it makes me really uncomfortable. So I don't know, it's, it's not enough that I don't want to be on the radio, but I, it's definitely something that I would have to get used to because, I mean, since I was like seven, nobody has told me that I have a horrible voice, but I, I know I don't sound like Jack Benny, so I, I'm kind of trying to find this balance of sounding like myself and sounding authoritative and also being true to the fact that I am a young woman and I'm very proud of being a young woman in radio journalism. So I don't know. It's kind of an interesting time for it. So embrace your vocal fry, I think, is really what you're trying to say. Exactly. Inspirational quotes by Lisa Jenkins. Um, Emmy, what about you? I know you kind of had some experience, some kind of less ideal experience with a vocal teacher. Yeah. And honestly, like going way back, into my childhood, the voice, both literally my voice and also conceptually the idea of having a voice is really personal to me. Um, I was really shy as a kid and so much so, I didn't, so I didn't talk a lot, Uh, so much so that in second grade, this classmate of mine asked me if I had a tongue. (laughs) I'll never forget that. Yeah, literally in the middle in the middle of class, he just went, "Wait, so do you have a tongue?" And I just shyly like grew bright red and <laughs> nodded at him. <laughs> we'll never ever forget that. Um, later in life, we <laughs> talked about it and laughed about it. Um, <laughs> but when I was in high school, I sort of started to find probably around age sixteen. I gained a lot of confidence and 
found my passions in in art and in being obsessed with music and photography and all kinds of things and like and dance and through that confidence I was gaining through that to started to talk more and I guess I didn't really think about the way my voice sounded in my talking more I just was like how cool like I can talk all the time and I, I think I became known as kind of like a really talkative chatty person um but then when I was in college I did a lot of acting I I was in an acting studio and I had a vocal teacher basically without saying this but pretty directly implying that I had a horrible voice and another acting teacher telling me that I didn't inhabit my own voice that's really mean and that was it it stung it was that's a really hard thing to hear that you don't inhabit your voice because I I very much feel that I do and I speak really emotionally and I like go up and down a lot and and really and I talk really fast when I'm excited about something and interesting interested in something and I don't know I think that I've developed lately this not lately, but in the past couple of years, this tendency, especially when I'm in, you know, sort of debates or like, you know, not kind of heated discussions with friends, especially if it's mainly men in the conversation, I get really combative. And I think, and like, kind of like intense about the way I speak. And I think that it kind of all comes back to that and me feeling like if I don't do that, A, I won't be heard and B, I won't, like, I have to work really hard to prove my intelligence because part of having, like, a bubbly emotional voice is that often people kind of assume that I'm not as intelligent as I actually am because my voice, because I sometimes do uptalk or I have vocal fry or whatever, and that's really upsetting to me that, that those things are tied, but I think that they are culturally, and I have directly experienced it where I felt like I saw a male perspective of me change like as I as I maybe started to mimic the way that they spoke more or got more aggressive with my speech rather than being like just bubbly funny Emmy or whatever so that was a lot of personal information <laughs> I know therapy session on on the earwaves no but I but I just think like you know I that's why I'm so I'm so passionate about this topic and it upsets me so much that there are trolls out there that feel the need to write in to these women who have made it in journalism and are doing incredible things for women and be like, yeah, well, I don't like it when they're <laughs> on the show. Like, it would be so much better if you were never on the show and, like, only the men were on the show because I, you're distracting or you sound stupid. And the subtext is that we just don't want to listen to you, mm-hmm. which is, yeah. yeah, I think the most problematic part of any of this is – well, if we don't like the sound of your voice, we don't want to listen to what you have to say, regardless of the medium or regardless of how important it And this is something, this was actually one of the biggest things that Emmy and I talked about as we were planning to create this podcast in the first place. We had this really long walk where we just talked about what specifically we were self-conscious about um, within our voices. And my tendency to speak incredibly quickly and to get really high-pitched when I'm excited or upset about something and both feeling that we we both need to maybe modulate a little bit but also thinking no this is actually the point we're trying to create the space for young women on the radio to just exist on the radio or to exist on the podcast feed in this case as they are too and not trying to you know I'm not going to pretend that I have the NPR voice because I don't. And the NPR voice is changing, which is what is so cool. But yeah, exactly. Alice. Well, I, my voice is definitely an interesting one, I think, in the sense that I've def- I was talking to um, one of my classmates today about this, actually, that I've been told since I was maybe in high school that I have a very, very calm and very relaxing and soothing voice. Um, I've, I can't tell you the number of voicemails I've left people where they call me back and they're like, what a voicemail that was. That was just so lovely. Um, it was very, you know, nice to <laughs> hear amazing. in terms of going into a profession where you're literally using your voice to help others with their voice and communication. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, I, I fell into linguistics because I loved learning languages. And then linguistics was kind of a scientific way to look at languages. And within that world of the science of rules of language, um, I was introduced to sociolinguistics, which really looked at everything we're just talking about with race, with socioeconomics, with regional differences, gender, everything. Um, and how, as I mentioned, how we use, how we judge people based on their voices. And that really kind of led me to speech therapy as this kind of way to um, help people in a, in a way that really means so much to me because everything that we're talking about, so much of it does come down. I mean, communication is everything. It's how we connect with people. It's how we get information. It's how we form relationships. So um, the voices is just one of the ways that we are communicative. I just really want to keep talking about this forever, but it's probably time for us to move <laughs> into our final segment. I actually, we, we talked about this a little bit more, at, um, a little bit earlier, that we want to have a second or even a third episode on the, the radio voice, ideally with some listener feedback. So the conversation is not over by any means. Um, so first of all, I want to encourage all of the listeners to write in with your thoughts on the radio voice. Does... Does my vocal fry irritate you? How do you feel about recording your own voice on a voicemail or otherwise? Um, and we would love to hear everything. Just email us at ontheearwaves at gmail.com. And that brings us to our final segment, Stuck in Our Heads. Alice, since you're our guest co-host, would you like to start? Sure. So my pick for the week for what's stuck in my head um, will probably always be the Savage Love cast because... Regardless of what relationship you are in, or if you're not, man, that is some sound educating advice from Dan Savage. Do you want to explain a little bit about um, who Dan Savage is and kind of what the podcast is on kind of a week-to-week basis? I know it's a pretty famous one, so people may. Yeah, I mean, uh, Dan Savage is a, he writes a column for a weekly newspaper in Seattle, which I've forgotten. Um, but he also does a podcast called the Savage Love Cast, um, where callers can call in with relationship problems and he either records a message back to them or calls them back and gives them advice. I will add that he's not for everyone because he is pretty, uh, radical in his relationship models and his advice and many of his views on relationships, but it's some interesting food for thought. Cool. I have listened to a little bit of Dan Savage specifically. I think he's been featured on This American Life a few times. Um, and he's just really lovely to listen to. But I definitely want to subscribe to Savage Lovecast because I have been meaning to do so for months and months at this point. Do it. So have I. I haven't done it yet. I need to. Sounds great. Emmy, what is your pick? My pick this week, I have been super into all of the HowStuffWorks.com podcasts, which uh, actually I mentioned one in our first episode, which is Stuff to Blow Your Mind. And earlier this episode, I mentioned an episode of Stuff You Should Know. But I guess I'll talk a little bit about two episodes from Stuff to Blow Your Mind that I listened to this week that I found super interesting and kind of seasonal for uh, the end of October and Halloween season. They did um, a couple episodes that were in the realm of the creepy and costumes and all things uh, Halloween. So one episode that I was really fascinating because it was just so outside of anything that I knew about at all or would ever come across in my daily life was the creepypasta experiment. So, first of all, I didn't know what creepypasta was. <laughs> creepypasta is a type of copy pasta, which my understanding of copy pasta, which I just gained from this episode, is it's that stuff on the internet that people try to pass off as real, but it's not real. Like when you get those weird email threads 
where like some it was about like some urban legend and it's like wait oh, is this a like, it, make sure you this is a real thing if that's what you're gonna ask okay <laughs> i don't know i was gonna ask is this a a riff off of copy paste i think so yeah oh, i think fascinating. i don't know i don't think they said it i don't think they said it in the episode maybe they did and i wasn't i was in my car i probably just didn't hear it but they yeah copy pasta as in things that are easily copy pasteable is kind of how they describe yeah. it so anyway creepy pasta is specifically the horror creepy genre of copy pasta the most famous example being Slenderman, which a lot of people have probably heard about but usually they're like weird, fake science experiments where they like, I, I don't know. Anyway, I can't, I cannot do it justice. But if you want to learn about some really weird niche internet stuff, listen to that episode. Another great episode from their Halloween segments was the Halloween costume made me do it in which they explore the psychology behind costumes and how wearing a mask or wearing a sexy costume or wearing any costume at all changes your behavior. Hmm. Super interesting. That is really fascinating. Yeah, you should. Honestly, all of the HowStuffWorks.com podcasts are great. They just get get the wheels turning in the brain. Love that. So I think this may be the first week so far that we have all had podcasts. Woohoo! My pick for the week is Lena Dunham's new podcast, Women of the Hour. She just released episode one last week. We're recording this on November 8th, so at the beginning of November. And I really don't know how she does everything that she does, but she has created a podcast miniseries that's going to be five episodes about women, about her friends, um, and they, they're each going to have a different subject. And the first episode, is, the theme is friendship, and it is just really lovely. Like, I don't... I feel like Lena Dunham often is taken to be making some political statement and people love having huge discussions about her role in, within culture. But I actually just think this episode in particular showed off what a great writer she is and how great she is at kind of con conceptualizing a piece. But also just she's kind of just nice and funny and all of her friends are nice and funny. And it is really just a conversation about friendship they had a, interviews with a bunch of different women one portion that really stuck out to me is lena dunham kind of formed this friendship with a woman who wrote an article and lena dunham tweeted at her saying i really liked this article it really made an impact on me um please email me and the girl wrote her this this woman wrote her an email and they became kind of email pen pals. And it resulted in this incredibly deep friendship. And they're still consider each other very, very close friends. And they see each other all the time now. They both live in Brooklyn together now. Um, and it just made me really jealous because I want to email pen pal. <laughs> and it was just nice. Honestly, I would just recommend listening to this if you want to kind of hear people talk about their friends and make your and make you really kind of meditate on your own friendships and specifically kind of how valuable long-term friendships are and how valuable new friendships are and kind of the way we use our friendships and the way we experience them on a day-to-day -day basis and kind of over the entire stretch of our lives. So I am excited to see what the next couple of episodes are. And I also am loving the trend of women starting podcasts. I feel like... Me too. Yeah. We have really... <laughs> we've really been picking up recently. So per Emmy's request, we're going to end this episode with a track by Britney Spears, who is apparently guilty of being responsible for all of Vocal Fry. Her and Kesha. So... Not guilty. They just they're just trendsetters. What can, Mavericks. What can you say? What can you say? Our exactly. entire the, the exactly. entire vocal fry debate could really you, be summed up by the, the like last three sentences that we just spoke.
on that wonderful Britney Spears note, that concludes this episode of On the Earwaves. As always, you can find episode information at our website, ontheearwaves.com. You can also find us on Instagram, SoundCloud, Facebook, and at our personal Twitters. I'm at Lisa underscore M underscore Jenkins, and Emmy is at the Emmy Awards. Emmy is spelled E-M-I. Also, please contact us at our email address, ontheearwaves at gmail.com. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and please review us. If you throw us some stars, we will be exposed to more listeners, which is awesome. And yeah, thank you in advance. And on that note, if you like us, please share our episodes and tell your friends about us because we would love to hear from more and more listeners always. As always, a big thank you to Dylan Fitzgibbons for our intro music and to Teo Antrim for our logo. If you'd like to get involved either as a co-host or for an interview, please email us. The show is produced by Lisa and marketed by me. Thank you so much for listening and thank you to Alice for joining us. Thank you guys for having me. It was was a delight to talk about my favorite subject of all time. Well, we have loved having you. Yeah, it's been fantastic. Okay. Bye. 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 How much vocal fry could we fit into one episode?